Hi, Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show and founder of Abortion Access Front, or as we call it, Abortion AF. Abortion AF is a nonprofit created by activists, organizers, and a variety of showbiz types who want to use our talents and platforms to raise awareness to the erosion of abortion access and create programs that help us reclaim this fundamental right. We help connect local abortion providers and activists with their community so folks can learn how to help clinics stay open, patients access care, and reverse the current decimation of bodily autonomy. We also get into good trouble exposing the lies of the anti-abortion movement at their churches, their rallies, and their religious-based fake abortion clinics where creepy people doing some sort of medical cosplay demonize folks seeking abortion care instead of providing it. Oh yeah, and our weekly podcast, Feminist Buzzkills Live, we use facts and humor to wade through the ever-changing news in this hellscape. To learn more or to make a donation, visit aafront.org. Exposing sexist ass clowns has never been more rewarding. Or TV is filmed before a live studio audience being held against their will. I'm familiar with it. Oh, good <laughs> yes, that's right. Hi, Janet. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Leland TV. Would you take a moment just to introduce yourself and tell us what you're working on? Sure, sure. Hi, I'm Janet Varney. Um, I am always up to possibly more than I should be. Uh, right now I'm on many podcasts, uh, including Braving the Elements, which is the Nickelodeon iHeart podcast I host with Dante Bosco, where we deal with all things Avatarverse, which has been super fun. Um, I also run a comedy festival when there isn't a pandemic, and I am currently shooting uh, the first season of a great Apple TV show starring Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne called Platonic. That's awesome. Are, is there anything that we should know about the show or be on the lookout for with news? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's information out there about it. It might just be kind of in the trades at this point. But uh, but Rose and Seth play longtime just friends who are just friends, but who sort of left each other's lives um, and then have come back together in a little bit more. Gosh, I really hesitate to say middle age. It's just not something I'm comfortable with <laughs> because it also applies to me. Uh, but, same, same. Yeah, right. Um, when they come back into each other's lives, uh, you know, it's you sort of see the effects of that, and um, it's been so fun. It's such an amazingly lovely group of people, and uh, Apple has been great. It's I'm excited. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I, I saw I saw the, the the deadline announcement with the casting. That's. Yeah, you always seem to have to pop up in these like just very fun, unique properties. You know, you weren't Stand Against Evil, which which I thought was was criminally like underrated. Oh, um, thank you. So, and so, like, I'm always fascinated by just all these different properties you pop up in. But let me uh, let me take go back to what you're doing with iHeartRadio real quick, just so we can get the, the plug in oh, for that. Oh, sure, uh, <laughs> of course. Um, so, what what is it like going back to the Avatarverse and Avatar characters after all these years? Well, it's been absolutely amazing for me because as a fan of the initial first series, I didn't, you know, have anything to do with it. I was just a fan. Uh, it wasn't something that I watched when it was on. I was not, you know, I would say not only was I not the age group, it was more that I don't think I had a television because I was living in San Francisco. Um, but, uh, it was something that, you know, so many of my friends were completely in love with and I have found it not too terribly long before I auditioned for the second series, The Legend of Korra. And so getting a chance to, 
I mean, really just exploit any connection I have to the to that entire franchise so that I can spend time talking about the Avatar verse and meeting cast members I didn't already know from the first series and just digging deep into the lore and the kind of morals and values of that show um, has been it's just been an absolute dream. I feel like I cry every episode over something beautiful that happens in Avatar. So we're just in our second season. Um, so it's book two that we're in. We're basically right at the midpoint of recording. We're in the midpoint of recording uh, book to the, the, the midpoint of, of season two uh, of Avatar. And then, you know, all along the way, we have additional episodes every other week that, you know, dive into something maybe a little more specific and wonky about the show or is a cast interview or what have you. That is so cool. And I, th- those fans are great. I, I have found them to just be yes. really, really passionate and lovely. And so I'm so happy that you've gone back to the material. I, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about Korra because I know, I know you get asked about, you know, Avatar and the Legend of Korra a lot. Um, but there is, there's one just point that I wanted to, uh, question, ask you about, sure. which is that, um, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you had mentioned in an interview, um, that you had come to terms with your own bisexuality through working on the Legend of Korra. Is that, is that right? Well, I will say this. I wouldn't say that only because I have sort of been openly out for my whole life. Um, it wasn't something that I made a conscious choice to announce, uh, because it never really occurred to me to, especially because I've been talking about it extremely openly on my podcast, The JV Club, which I've been doing now for over 10 years. Uh, but there was some period of time in which I like did something on social media that I thought was a foregone conclusion. And I think a bunch of people saw that and were like, wait a minute. Right. Hold on. This means she outed herself. It's like, no, no, I, I was never in. I was never in. <laughs> um, so, yeah. but it definitely has been the vehicle through which I think most people have learned that about me, whether it's because they go to a Wikipedia page or they hear one of various podcasts where I've talked about it. Um, so yeah, so it was, it, that was such a gift because doing Cora already had been the job of a lifetime. And I had already engaged with fans at Comic Cons worldwide who had this amazing experience with both series and then to have them feel seen to have many people in the lgbtqia plus community feel seen through uh the korasami story which of course was the end of the series was i mean talk about icing on the cake it was it was unreal because they, it was just another thing uh, i can't there are things about Korra that i can't relate to nor would i ever pretend to but that was another thing that you know for me was very very close to home do you look for that in the roles that you play? Like, do you look for something that has like that deep emotional connection? Well, I think it always helps. I mean, I love when people ask uh, questions like that that make it sound like I'm just like thumbing through scripts, you know, <laughs> looking for that perfect thing. I mean, I could not be more beholden to Hollywood in terms of what roles I get to do. But um, I've been really, really lucky in that I think whatever... I bring to something that I do end up getting cast for. Somebody saw something there that um, that was that felt like a deeper connection, and it's a little bit trickier with characters like the one I played on. You're the worst, who is just this very in so many ways on the surface so different from me and you sort of have to plumb the depths of like what if what if you could just be that person who is contemptuous enough of everyone else or self-loathing enough that you just go ahead and say all of the things you would never say and probably would never even think um 
But she's also deeply insecure. And so whenever you have a character like that, you know, I'm thinking a lot about that as I watch this latest season of The Boys, for example, where, you know, you're tasked with, you know, your the character you're playing most likely thinks of themselves as a good person or a broken person, but it's not their fault or whatever, even if they're self-loathing, there's some vulnerability there. And so if you can find that in anything, I think you can you can find the honesty. Tired of being tracked online? DuckDuckGo can help. Tracking is a comprehensive program. Trackers lurk nearly everywhere online from websites, emails, and even apps in your phone. That means you need a multi-pronged solution. DuckDuckGo's all-in-one privacy app can be used as an everyday browser with private search, tracking, blocking, encryption, and now email protection built in. It's the free, easy button for online privacy. Download the app today. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hi, I'm Mike Reese. I've been writing for The Simpsons for 30 years. But in my spare time, I travel. I've been to Iran, Iraq, the North Pole, the South Pole, Chernobyl. These are my vacations, folks. I've even been to North Korea. That's the scary Korea. It's all in my new travel podcast on the Believe Network called What Am I Doing Here? It's fast, it's funny, and it's factual enough. You'll hear how I was robbed in Rio, kidnapped in Honduras, dangled from a cliff in Pakistan, and chased by a lady with a meat cleaver again in Honduras. I had a lot of problems in Honduras. Each week I visit all the world's hot spots and hell holes so you don't have to. You're welcome. Download and subscribe to What Am I Doing Here? wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I would love to ask you about your journey to San Francisco. Sure. Um, because I, I, like, I just would love to know what, what pulled you in. What was it that, that spoke to you when you first got, that, got out there? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I really had that experience of being... I mean, I went to San Francisco for the first time when I was 13. I was definitely in my goth phase. I am going to go ahead and admit this, even though I regret re- admitting it even once. But I had like a clockwork horns fixation, which now I look back and I'm like, I don't advocate <laughs> violence and like horrible things being done to people. What was going on there? But, uh, You know, in having conversations with people over the years, it's like, okay, well, that's the age in which we sort of come to understand rebellion or come to understand feeling like an outcast or feeling like we're pushing the limits of what, you know, is quote unquote okay for various reasons. But anyway, I put like a a clockwork eyelash on to go to Haight-Ashbury and... I have to say it exceeded my expectations. The city on the whole, I fell madly in love with it. Um, it felt so magical and special and that became a goal of mine. Um, and it sort of superseded goals, uh, career goals and relationship goals. They're like, I fell in love with San Francisco and I had to get there and I moved there as soon as I could, which was right after the second, the first semester of my junior year of college where I was in Arizona. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I love to say, like, I think people, you know, you move somewhere because of a job or because of a person or because of the place. And I 100 percent move because of the place and just tried to figure everything out from there. Um, and it's a really complicated, really messy city. There's a lot wrong with it. But I still have that feeling 
in a very sort of Tales of the City, Armstead, Mopan way of the city being a character. And I'm so sorry because I know everyone thinks of Sex in the City and New York being the fifth character. <laughs> <laughs> when I say that, that's really ruined it for everyone. But I still feel a sense of that place as more than the contents, as more than the people living it at any given time. It feels somehow sentient in a different way. Um, so I'm, I'm so happy that I still do Sketchfest because getting a chance to go yes. up there and just be there and sort of have that palimpsest of memories um, all stacked on top of each other at a certain street corner, for example, um, that's really it's just like very rich. It's a rich part of my life, if that makes sense. It does. And you you are now a, like a fabric, part of the fabric of the city with Sketchfest. Yeah. Because uh, it's been over, what's over 20 years now? Yeah. What, what was the, what was the genesis of that? Like what was, what made you want to do it with your partners and then what kept you going? Yeah. I, I mean, we, at the time we knew that San Francisco had this amazing comedy history, you know, the North Beach world and the hungry eye and the weirdness of sort of like body meets comedy and stand up and skylight books. You get the beats in there and this sort of overflow of, of those different things happening together and affecting each other. And, and there was great sketch that was coming out of San Francisco in like the sixties and seventies. And then sketch sort of retreated into the background, but that's what my friends and I were into when we were into comedy. And we went to SF State together and we loved the state and Mr. Show and Kids in the Hall um, and the Tracy Ullman show uh, and and wanted to do sketch. And there really wasn't a place to do it unless you rented a theater for a month, which felt very ambitious and pretentious for, you know, some scrappy 45 minute sets of sketch that you probably would hate if you had to do it for a month. So we ended up uh, partnering with. Uh, five other groups we had met in our year of being together through um, various little sad open mics in San Francisco and bless those stand-up uh, comedy clubs hearts for trying to give us a shot when bachelorettes are just like, why is why are you wearing a wig? This isn't funny. Um, so we rented a, a theater all together and just did a little local festival. But San Francisco was very supportive of the arts. Robin Williams was, you know, somebody who came ever, you know, who came to that festival and came to subsequent festivals. And, um, we always just got amazing support. So that's what kept us going as well is the, the word of mouth from artists who believed in us, uh, and what we were trying to do coming in from out of town, like Fred Willard or the Upright Citizens Brigade, who came to our very second ever festival. Um, when you have people like that who are also known and loved by basically everyone in comedy, that goes a long way if you can say they came and they're even coming back. So the audiences and the performers 100% have kept us going in pretty much every sense of the word. We would not be doing it if it weren't for those you know, components and then just cobbling together this extraordinary staff over the years. What has it been like after, well, I mean, we're still in COVID. We probably have another year of this. Um, what is the status of the festival now? Like, are you, are you gearing back up or like, what's the plan? Yeah, that's the plan. I mean, we were so close to launching our opening night, uh, in this last January of 2022. We had our entire festival booked out. Um, everyone sort of felt comfortable. We had great COVID practices in place. Things were opening up. We all know, you know, this old song. And then Omicron, our friend Omicron decided to really shake things up. 
And we were definitely in a really difficult position because at that point, uh, as we as you probably remember, the government had sort of gone hands off and we were sort of waiting for someone to make the decision for us. And then it became clear that we were going to have to make that decision. And so between Christmas and New Year's, we, you know, had several really painful calls where we just wanted to we ultimately decided the safety of everyone was so much more important than you know, making it happen. And so we more or less picked the entire festival up and dropped it into January, February of 2023. So fingers crossed, Mm. we're going to turn 20 for the third time, (laughs) but the first time (laughs) ever live in person this next January of 2023. Are you going to call it the 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 third time? Honestly, we should. <laughs> we should. I mean, I think I think we're at the point now where we are sort of like, do we need to is this like we keep turning 20 kind of branding? What are we doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, so hopefully hopefully we'll go, we'll get to do it in person. I mean, if we're doing it right now, I think we everyone would show up and take the right precautions and, you know, we would we would make it work. Um, hopefully it will be better than worse um, next next winter. We'll see. Yeah, we can only hope. We will um, see. I mean, let me ask you about just because you're a brilliant writer, uh, and I say that because I don't just I, tossing I really, that off well, like it's a foregone conclusion. Well, Thank you. <laughs> well, I do, I do, I don't feel like it, it's talked like you know, like I said before we started recording, like you know, you do a lot of interviews, and people are always asking you about certain things, right? But they don't talk about things like riff tracks or, or things like you know, you that you were a co-writer on the Jaws 3D yes, riff track, indeed. which is which is one of my favorites, oh, and so I would just you. love to hear. What what is that experience like of putting together a riff track and and you know you're a great improviser but but like how much of it is scripted versus how much of that is you reacting to the film as you watch it? Well, I will say you know Cole Stratton and I, who happens to also be one of my partners in SF Sketchfest, he founded co-founded it with me and then our other partner David Owen and Cole and I have worked together in comedy collaboratively in kind of almost every way you can. I mean, we've been in little movies together and we've done you'd like radio spots together in San Francisco. I mean, we have definitely. We know each other's brains very well. And so when we take on doing a riff tracks, um, it's kind of spooky because often we'll, we'll go our separate ways and take little chunks of it. And, um, the, 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 the way it flows together is, like kind of scary because they're we're not discussing anything we have no idea what the other person's doing um and then you know we'll work together and really shape it and we'll switch out some of the jokes and so i would say the the initial phase is very writing heavy um because it's sure. it's a really long process i mean when you break it down and realize you're trying to write a joke every 10 or so seconds of a 90 to 120 minute movie that's a lot of jokes. So um, so I think initially we really try to pack it in and then we spend a lot of time together working through it. And there will be moments where one of us will just say something off the cuff and we're like, oh, that's going in. Like, that's better. We got it. Da, da, da. Um, but it's a it's a really cool process because very quickly you find out what it how much work it is to do mystery science theater type riffing where it really sounded like we were just watching the show with joel or mike bill kevin you know frank all those guys and it was and it was so tightly written and done um but they made it seem so off the cuff so that's like we had these amazing mentors to kind of work off from you know absolutely what what is it about improv that that kind of pulls you in? Like what what was it that that made you embrace that as like your 
not your primary form of kind, but just the one that, that you, you go to. Yeah. I mean, I think I don't have the, I don't have the thing, the drive in me that needs to do stand up. That's not, that sounds really hard to me. Um, I often joke that improv is for lazy people, which isn't really true because you have to do a lot of work to get kind of decent at it. But once you are, you know, you're not traveling with all your set and props and your scripts and your sound cues like you do with sketch. And you're not completely by yourself trying to win the audience over at solo as you would be with stand up. And you can show up for a gig and have no idea what you're going to do um, because you've ostensibly already built all those muscles and done the work. So uh, but to me, the rush is because and so I come back to the idea of people who talk about that rush that they get from doing stand up. That's not for me. And I would say even being live on stage in a play and getting a laugh is not necessarily a rush for me the way it is for some people. But when someone surprises you on stage, when someone you're with surprises you and you have to stifle a laugh or in my case, not stifle it very well, um, or you have that bubbling, giddy feeling of, oh, I know, oh, I'm, oh, I've got a response for that. That's, I think, going to be great. That high is where it comes for me. And so that is very much an improv based high because it can't exist if you know what you're going to say and it can't exist if you're by yourself. So having those exchanges are like, that's, that is very addictive. This is Rosie Tran from Rosie and BJ Save the World, a podcast asking big questions and discussing how to solve these big issues. This is a podcast for people just like you who ask, has the war on drugs been successful? Do we need universal basic income? Should we legalize sex work? Go to rosieandbjsavetheworld.com to get more confused. Do you want to grow your audience without sacrificing your privacy? then the Stupid Sexy Privacy mini-series is just for you. It's a short, special presentation that will run every Thursday morning right here on Weiwo.tv for the next 23 weeks. In each short episode, we'll teach you how to preserve as much of your privacy as possible while still participating in the creator economy. You'll also hear from top privacy and disinformation experts who will teach you how to protect yourself from fascists and weirdos. And who doesn't want that? So make sure you're subscribed to Weiwo.tv where all podcasts can be found and we'll see you every Thursday morning for a special presentation of Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weiwo.tv miniseries. How has that helped you uh, throughout your career? Because it's such a great skill set that I think people overlook uh, in transferring it outside of entertainment. So like, I'm curious, like, with, with the improv background, how have you found that it was helpful in other things that you've done? A hundred percent. In fact, I always tell people, you know, a lot of people say that they want to be voice actors um, because they're huge fans of anime and they're, they love cartoons. And so at cons, that comes up all the time. And I do always recommend even people who just want to be writers or who want to be someplace in the performing arts space um, to take an improv class because... Uh, you find out very quickly that everybody's in it together. You find out quickly that you must listen to what's going on and that you can't be in your head about it or you're not going to be good um, and that, you, that you're going to fail and fail and fail and fail. And there can be so much value in that. And I have often said that I wish I would have failed more at, when I was younger because I would have been so much more forgiving of myself and I would have tried new things and been less fearful of that. And I think improv gives you the, that permission 
whenever you start taking improv, you're going to get that permission and you can apply it to meeting new people, going out for a job, like responding quickly in a situation that is totally serious and isn't even about humor because your brain sort of it's it's like exercise for your brain. It genuinely is. It makes you think faster. And so I think it's it's kind of invaluable if people have the time and the means. And, you know, I think schools are doing a better job now of making it affordable. And, you know, all of that, those conversations have been a long time coming and um, they're improving. And uh, I, I think it's I think it's a great tool for a number of different things. My, my last two questions for you are um, the first I ask everybody this is what's something that you would say if you could go back in time and talk to yourself out in Arizona before before heading out? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't change anything, but I definitely do think you know we we just touched on it here. I, I think I would say let yourself fail more. Just let yourself fail more. I don't. I did not have parents who were breathing down my neck, looking for excellence and making me feel pressured or anything like that. I can't blame it on anyone else. It was totally this internal mechanism that was just so self-critical and didn't handle outward criticism, like people critiquing me very well. Um, I would just go straight to like, well, I guess I'll never do that again. Um, and and that's it's so useless. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's so useless. So uh, that's something that I. I wish I could have absorbed earlier is to be able to go back and say, like, it's you know what? Just try this thing. Be terrible at it. That's okay. You're still a okay person, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I think it's it's good advice for all of us, you know, to go back and if we all had the chance, I think we would all say that, right? In some form of just just breathe. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Where where can we find your stuff? Uh, where can we find you online? Like, what would you? Where can we find the the the, uh, the avatar of our show? Sure, that you're doing. Like, tell us where we can find all everything. Sure, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm only okay at best on social media. I spend a lot of time not being on social media, um, which you will see because. There's a lot of pride I take in like my one tweet every two days. It's like, la la, <laughs> I did it. Um, uh, and that's not a, that's not a front on anyone. It's just not for me. It's has not, that's not where I get my, my brain food or my heart food. Instead, it leaves me feeling like I've had too much caffeine, kind of like, you know. Um, but you, but I try to keep things, uh, updated enough that you can go there and sort of scroll through tweets and see what's going on. Um, there is definitely a link to Braving the Elements. You can get that anywhere you get podcasts, any podcast platform. Just look for Braving the Elements or you can look up Avatar or my name or Dante's name and I'm sure it'll come up. Um, you can find the JV Club. Same thing. Thing. That's where I've been talking to famous, much more famous people than than myself uh, for the last ten years about their awkward teenage years. As you could see, we've got a variation on a theme here. I'm so fascinated by people's adolescences, and it's a way of knowing them yes. without like digging into their personal private life today. Uh, and then. Um, and then, yeah, like shows that I've done, you can just sort of give give that stuff a Google. Like you mentioned Stand Against Evil. I think that's still you can still watch that on Hulu. Um, uh, you can watch Avatar and and Legend of Korra on Netflix. Um, I think uh, You're the Worst is also on Hulu. Um, and then there's a show online that I don't talk about that much since since I was blasting it out when we first came out. But I wrote a, a show for IFC um, called Fortune Rookie, and it is a version of me who who is told that she has psychic powers and quits show business to become uh, just sort of a psychic of all psychic trades. Um, and then the sort of 
through line is that James Roday, the star of Psych, is a personal friend in that world and in this world. Uh, and it takes it very personally that I become a psychic because he feels like I'm stealing <laughs> his 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 gig. Um, and so that's that's a really, really fun show. It's really absurd. A lot of great people in it. Steve Agee, Scott Adsit, uh, Lorraine Newman, Deborah Baker Jr., just lots of friends and uh, Gary Anthony Williams. Basically, it's the... Oh my gosh, I, there are so many amazing, talented people. I love working with Fred yeah. Armisen's in it. Um, you know, what can I have them do? What can I, what, will it be fun to hear them say my words? <laughs> and, and of course, they improvise and make it even better. So, Fortune Rookie, you can look for Fortune Rookie, fortunerookie.net, and, uh, and check that out. I'm super proud of it. I'm going to do a deep dive. Uh, would you Would you be willing to come back to talk just Fortune Rookie Absolutely. for 20 minutes? Absolutely. Like, Check it out. See what you think. Okay. And then, yeah, we can talk about like the process of making a show because that's a whole – that's not, yes. and that, that's just a short show. That's just a web show. So it's not even like taking on an hour, you know, doing eight episodes of an hour in a season is – I can't even imagine. Oh, oh, it's <laughs> – I'm sure it's like a, like a Herculean task. Yeah, exactly. Um, but – We'll, we'll see. So we'll save that awesome. for, for next time. So the last question I ask everybody is this. What, what is one question you've always wanted to be asked in an interview that you just haven't been asked yet? Ooh, what have I always wanted to be asked and haven't been asked yet? That is a really, really good question. Um, I think, I do you know, I play a game of MASH, Mansion, Apartment, Shack, House, on my podcast, and every once in a while, someone will have me play MASH back, um, but I don't think anyone has ever asked me what, like, musicians I would want to create a soundtrack for my life, um, and that's one of my favorite questions to ask people. I say this with zero idea of what I would answer if I was asked that. But that is one of those MASH questions that I go, oh, that's such a good question. I would love, you know, what would I do? What would I say? That is an excellent question. Um, I'm trying to think of who mine would be. Right? Miles Davis. Miles Davis, gorgeous um, choice. Yeah, Miles Davis. Gorgeous choice. Um, do you have... Do you have a go-to for that? I mean, I really don't. I've never, stole? I've never <laughs> had to answer it. Usually you get, you get three answers because at the end you'll end up with one of all of these different categories that you choose from. Um, I think I would probably, I mean, this is, I feel this is a real easy answer, but I mean, I would like to see what Boniver would do. I would like to see what Boniver would do. I can't help myself. Um, or it, number one with a bullet, Jose Gonzalez. Got to put him at the top. Interesting. Boniver shows up in there Interesting. as well. Interesting. Yeah. This is Greg Goldstein, and I'm the applause sign operator here at Weiwo TV. But turning this cute little sign on is only a small part of what I do with the show. I also pay the bills. So if you like what you just heard, and you want to hear more episodes of Weiwo TV, let me share with you how I make the money to pay those bills. Knock, knock. Who's there? Broken pencil. Broken pencil who? Never mind. There's no point. (laughs) Did you know that laughter is a distinctive human characteristic meant to help calm us down? You see, the business of marketing may be ever-changing, but people have been documented trying to make each other laugh since ancient Greece. That's why, at That Funny Agency, we're more than just digital marketing professionals with years of big agency experience. We're also professional comedians, artists, actors, writers, and musicians who have a unique insight into the science of happiness. At our digital marketing agency, 
we use our innate humor to bring people closer together. Customer to business, collaborator to client, friend to friend. It's almost like funny is our middle name. Oh wait, it is. So come laugh with us, journey with us, grow with us at thatfunnyagency.com. We're That Funny Agency. Strategic 360-degree digital marketing by unapologetically funny people. That's it for this episode of Waywo TV. Our announcer, editor, and producer is Jonathan Ingram. Additional editing is provided by Andrew Van Voorhees, and those dulcet tones you hear are those of Rosie Tran, Crixley, Colton Hagen, and Elise Randall Monica. And of course, our show is hosted by Mr. B.J. Mendelson, recording at the George Carlin Podcast Studio. So folks, stay strong, stay safe, and stay sexy. Thanks for listening. Okay, your, your, your middle name is Macho, but uh, I'm wondering if you ever cry. You ever, has a Macho Man ever cried? Yeah. Really? Uh-huh. It's okay for macho men to show every emotion available right there, you know, because I've cried a thousand times, I'm going to cry some more. But I've soared with the eagles and I've slithered with the snakes and I've been everywhere in between. And I'm going to tell you something right now. There's one guarantee in life and that there are no guarantees. Yeah. And uh, I understand this. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody likes a quitter. Nobody said life was easy. So if you get knocked down, take the standing eight count, get back up and fight again. Did you enjoy today's show? If you did, please take a minute and leave us a review. Yes, we know you're busy and every podcast asks you to do this, but there's a good reason they do. Because every time you leave a review, that review helps more people find and listen to the show. And you know what that means for you? More great episodes of Weiwo.tv. So what are you waiting for? Take out your phone and leave us a review right now before you move on to something else and forget about us. And we'll see you next time, right? <laughs>